Good morning, Servants Church. Great to be with you guys again this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to look at a section of Scripture that helps us to experience communion with the Lord. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 6 to 9, so let's read it, and then we'll get into it together. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, as we read those verses, you might be thinking, okay, you're right, that's not about communion. What does this have to do with us remembering what Jesus has done for us? And I want to give you three main things, three main points about communion that I think we can learn from this text. And the first thing for us to see is that communion is a recognition of our sonship. When we, when we take the time to, to remember the Lord's death, to, to remember what he's done for us at the cross, what he's accomplished for us at the cross, we're remembering this fact that he has, he has provided for us to be granted sonship, that before God we are considered sons. Now this is important because one of the things that's difficult for us is we often don't feel like we're God's children. Or maybe we're the, the kind of uh, neglected, red-headed stepchildren of God's family. We don't feel like we belong as we should. We feel like we're on the outside somehow. And it's important for us to recognize that God wants us to, to relate to him through what Jesus did. God wants us to begin from a place of sonship. Now, it's interesting here because uh, Paul says it really clearly in verse 6. We are now sons. This is what he says. He says that, that you are sons, not you're becoming sons, but you are sons. And this is important because the Bible teaches that we are both now sons and becoming more son-like. This is what the scripture says in 1 John chapter 3. It says, Beloved, you, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, that's Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, I want you to recognize that what John says there fits with what Paul says in Galatians, and that is that, that position comes before purification. That we have this position as sons before we actually are living as sons should live. We learn to be obedient children. We grow into Christ-likeness or son-likeness from this position. And so this is important because, especially as we get towards the end of this message and talk about an appropriate place of self-examination, it's important for us to recognize we're not trying to see, am I a good enough Christian? But we're trying to see, do I actually know and believe? that I am a child of God, that I am a son because of what the son did in my place. In fact, in the first part of verse 7, he says plainly, you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
Now, if you guys know your Bibles well, if, you, if you've studied the New Testament at all, you probably know that the, the Scripture uses, the New Testament uses this language of redemption a lot. Redemption being the fact that is, is a slave purchasing language. That word redemption means to buy from, uh, 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 from one master to another. So the idea is the Bible does teach that we have been bought as slaves. The Bible talks about that we've been purchased at a price, the price of the blood of, Christ, uh, of God's own son, Christ. So we have been purchased as slaves, but we've also, listen, been adopted as sons. So, so we were slaves to sin, and then God, in his graciousness, and his providence, reaches out to us, and through Christ's redeeming, redeeming work, he purchases us so that we can be bought from being a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness. But he doesn't just leave us as a new slave. He doesn't just say, okay, now you're under a new mastership. He actually adopts us as sons. He doesn't just say, okay, I'm a nicer master, but he says, I'm going to adopt you as a son. And then when he says this in the second part of verse uh, 7, it gets even better. He says, and if a son, then an heir through God. In other words, as a son, as, as a child of God, we have access to God right now, and we have an expectation of inheritance in the future. Many of you know that, uh, that I went to the States recently to help move my mother from uh, her home where she was with her husband. My, my stepfather passed away about a month ago. And we moved her from there into a care home in California. And one of the things that we're wrestling with is trying to get uh, the insurance to actually pay for the care home, as they're, as they're meant to do. Insurance policy that my mom wisely purchased many, many years ago. Y'all, we need to be thankful for the NHS that you don't have to worry about that stuff, because we have to worry about that stuff in America. And, and I'll tell you, one of the things that's there is we're looking at what my mom has left in her pension. And if the insurance doesn't cover this the way they said they would, it's going to have to come out of pocket. We're talking thousands of dollars every month out of pocket. And, and so we, 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 we're at this point, we're not even thinking about, is there going to be an inheritance left for us? We're wondering, are we going to be able to support our parents? Are we going to be able to make sure that they have what they need or that our mom has what she needs? It's a very stressful thing. And really, the Proverbs talk about the fact that this is not how it's meant to be. It's not the parents providing for the children, though we are to honor our parents and make sure they're taken care of. But it's the parents laying aside something for their children. In other words, in God's providence, in God's order, he desires that, that parents raise up or have an inheritance to give to their children as a way to say, we love you and we've provided for you. And, and guess what? That might not happen for us. But as Christians... It's guaranteed to happen for us. We are guaranteed an inheritance. And this is really important because as we learn to walk with Jesus, there's lots of things that he calls us to let go of. Things that we are hoping to experience or possess this side of heaven. Things that we're kind of thinking, well, in a sense, we're like the prodigal son who says, give me my inheritance now. That we tend to be that way. We can be the kind that says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I, I want my inheritance now. I want my experience now. But God calls us not to live that way. And it can seem like, okay, God, I'm giving up these things that you call me to give up. What do I get in return? And here's the answer, the gospel answer, an inheritance. All that Christ inherits, we inherit with him when we're in him. That is our sonship. Do you recognize, listen, do you recognize that when you are taking communion, you're remembering what Christ has done for you, that you are remembering all that needed to be done to guarantee your inheritance. That's part of us recognizing our own sonship. Because the Son 
died in our place, we have become sons of the living God. Now, if you, if you want to know more about this, if you want to think more about this, I really encourage you to read Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Look it up maybe later this afternoon. Take some time to read it to yourself, maybe out loud in a quiet place. And think about this great blessing you have because of what Christ has done, this inheritance you have. So this is the first thing about, about how, this, how we can, what, what we're doing when we're having communion. That communion is a recognition of our sonship. But also, listen, communion is a celebration of God's nature. Paul does something really interesting here. In verse 8, we see that what Paul does is, he's now kind of connecting the pagan gods that the, the, the believers in Galatia, those who this book is written to, he's connecting the pagan gods they used to worship as Gentiles with a legalistic God that the Jews or the Judaizers are trying to get them to worship now. Now, so you know what I'm talking about. When Paul wrote this letter to the churches that are in Galatia, there's a really bad situation there because what's happening is there are these false teachers, these teachers that are coming and they're saying, listen, to really be a Christian, you have to be a Jew first. And once you get circumcised and keep the commandments, then you believe in Jesus and then you're actually part of God's family. You're actually a son or daughter of, of God. And Paul's saying that's a, a blatant heresy. That's a lie. That's a false gospel. And so to make his point, one of the things he's doing here is he's comparing that false gospel of legalism with the old lie they used to believe in paganism. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But notice what he says here in verse, uh, in verse 8. He says, formerly, when you did not know God. Now, this is important to recognize because we read that, and, and I don't know about you, but what I do in my Western mindset is I think, okay, don't know God, that means you're an atheist. We, we kind of think, like, if, you're, if you don't know God, you're a secularist. And we kind of divide people in, they're religious or they're secular. But actually, that wasn't the way it worked in this time, when, when this was written. Everyone who would have read this letter had a religious background, either pagan or Jewish. They would have had some sort of religious background. And the point that Paul's kind of making is, listen, you, you probably were very religious, but you didn't know God. Which tells us something. We can be very religious and not know God. Whether it's a pagan religion or a false religion or a self-imposed religion, we can be very religious and still not know God. And so the, the thing is, is that God doesn't want us just to, okay, tell me what the rules are, and I'll keep those rules, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, then I can get God off my back and I'll be fine. That's not how God calls us to live. That's not why God sent Christ to die for us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know what he's like. He wants us to know his uniqueness, that there's no one like him. I've said this a hundred times, I'll say it a hundred times more. God couldn't give us anything better than himself. And that's exactly why he created the universe. That's exactly why he created man. That's exactly why he sent his son, so that he could give himself to us. We could know him. Now, this is also important because what he's saying to them in verse 8, he's saying, listen, when you, when you, uh, before you knew God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, this is important too because he's talking about that the pagan gods they used to worship weren't gods. 
So he's not saying that they weren't real. There wasn't a spiritual entity there. In fact, he's saying this to kind of say, yeah, there was a spiritual uh, dimension behind that. There was false or evil spirits behind that. But those things cannot be compared to the creator of the universe. They're not by nature God. They're not the creator. They're not perfectly holy. They're not eternal in the same sense God is eternal as God's always existed. They have a completely different nature. In other words, there's so much not even worthy to be compared to the God of Scripture, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he's saying, listen, why would you go back and worship them? Because here's the thing. What we worship is what we become like. And this is important, especially with us. We're, we're probably here in this group. We're probably not in this group. Those who tend to uh, be drawn towards paganism. Now, some of you guys might be watching this uh, later on uh, or, or live streaming today, and maybe you don't have a church background, and maybe you do have a pagan background. That might be the background you're in. But it's important for us to recognize that whether it's pagan or religious or whatever kind of religion it is, this, this, these false religions are false first and foremost because it's not the same God. It's not the same God. There is none like the God of the Scriptures. And Paul's point here is saying, listen, do you recognize when you take communion, you are celebrating God's nature, that there's none like our God who loves, who is love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There's none like our God who would humble himself and take on humanity to die in our place. There is none like God who is exceedingly merciful, slow to anger. The God of the pagans got angry easy. But our God's not like that. He's patient with us. Even when we think he's not, the scriptures tells us he is. Now listen, it's not that God doesn't get angry. He's angry at sin every day. The issue is that God poured out his own anger on himself, you might say, on the cross. That God absorbed his own wrath for our benefit. That's the nature of our God. So when we take communion, we're remembering that. that we are worshiping God when we do this. And we, as we remember Jesus, Jesus said what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When we take communion, we're remembering how good our God is. How much better our God is than any of the false gods we're tempted to worship. Now lastly, we see in verse 9 is that communion is a recalibration of our faith. Do you know what I mean by that, that name, that word recalibration? It, it's a word that basically means putting things back in the right order through small changes. That's what that means. Uh, we, when you, re, you might recalibrate gauges to make sure that they're accurate in what they show. In, in a kind of a philosophical sense, to recalibrate means to change your mind, to think the right way. And so I'm using this word recalibration because I think it's a good thing that we recognize. Because sometimes we can look at communion and we think, okay, I'm supposed to examine myself. And we are. But the issue is not, it's not about us examining ourselves just so we can say, am I in or am I out? Because that can really lead to a, 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 a condemnation. It, it's a, an examine ourselves the same. Have I directed my faith the right way? Is my faith directed into the finished work of Christ or is my faith directed to myself? Is my faith directed to what God is doing in an ongoing work to bring me from the place of where I first came to know Jesus and to where I made completely like Jesus at the resurrection? Is my faith there or is my faith in myself trying to finish what God started, which is what Paul would 
had said that chapter 4 was the most foolish thing the Galatians could do. It's about recalibrating our faith. So I want to ask two questions that I'm getting from this text. Let me read the first section, the first part of verse 9, and then we'll ask the first question. Paul writes, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, he says, be known by God. This is important. Because the truth is, we can be in a place like this, we can watch videos like this, and we can think, I now know stuff about God. I get it, God's the one who made everything. I get it, God's the one who uh, died for my sins or sent Jesus to die for my sins. You know, okay, God's the one who, who decides who gets to go to heaven and hell. And so you know these kind of bits and pieces about God. But what Paul's doing here on purpose is he's wanting them to kind of recalibrate their faith so they're, they're recognizing, look, it's not about how much you know about God or even how much you feel like you know God in experience. It's about whether or not God knows you. And I have to tell you, I've been troubled by this phrase for, for many, many years. And, and it's a phrase that's not just here. Paul uses it also in 1 Corinthians 8 to be known by God. I think he also uses it in one of his pastoral epistles. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a scary phrase because it kind of feels like I don't have any control. Even if I know about God, I don't know if God knows me. But this is not the point of this phrase. The point of this phrase, listen, is this. When the Bible says, do, that are we known by God, the word there for know is a word that means to recognize. And the idea there is that God looks at us and he recognizes us as his own. I had a really touching moment with my mom, and I'll try to say this without crying. Um, you know, my mom, I think a lot of you guys know my mom is on the dementia spectrum. And she has a, a type of dementia where it's very difficult for her to speak anyway. And so we're not sure what she knows or doesn't know sometimes, what she's picking up or doesn't pick up sometimes. And so when I get there, I, I said, hey, mom, it's me, it's John, your youngest, you know. And I gave her a kiss, and she smiled, but it was the smile of, of it felt polite more than excited, you know, or, or, or recognizing me. But there's all these family pictures out on the, on the dining table that my niece was organizing. And so I grabbed some of those family pictures, and I started showing my mom pictures. And as I showed her pictures, her smile got big. And she looked at the care, the care worker that was there too, and she pointed at me and she says, that's my son. She recognized me. And I have to say, you know, if, you, if you're in that boat where your parents are getting older and you're wondering if they know you anymore, that is a huge thing to know. And, and I'll tell you, this is what God says to us in Christ. He looks at us and he says, I recognize you. I know exactly who you are. Now, this is important. Because what we all long for, what every person, you guys watching at home, you know this. You who are going to watch this later, you know this. You all know this. All of us long to be both known and loved. That is the greatest of all human desires. I want to be known and loved. And this is why, listen, this is why oftentimes we're really afraid this is why we, we put forth the best image of ourselves. Because we long to be loved, but we're afraid if we're really known, we won't be loved. But God says, listen, I know you. He says to those of us who've received Christ, who begin to recognize who we are before God, we are sinners. 
We, are, we, are, we have made ourselves his enemy. God says, yes, but I love my enemies. I sent Christ to die for you. And when you receive me, I say to you, I know you. I know all your doubts. I know all your failures. I know all your struggles. And I love you. That's what he says. That's what the gospel teaches. Now, even as I say that, some of you are thinking this. I know you're thinking this because I think this sometimes. That's too good to be true. It can't be that simple. But I can tell you on the authority of Scripture, it is absolutely that simple. And this is what Paul's trying to say. Listen, it's not that you figured God out. You were worshiping all these pagan gods, Galatians, and now you figured, no, no, it's the God and Father of Jesus. He's the right one. We figured it out. No, 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 no. You know God because he first knew you, just like you love God because he first loved you. God says to to us, I know you, and I love you. You're not going to find that anywhere else. One of the things that, that uh, I found a struggle in marriage, and I bet Sarah would say the same thing, is that after 29 years of marriage, it's exciting when we learn something new, but it's frustrating when you think someone should know something about me by this time. Could be a little thing, could be a big thing, but it can be frustrating because you, you start feeling confident that you're loved, and then you realize, well, actually, but you're not known. <laughs> You're not known like you thought. But that doesn't happen with God. God knows exactly what we're like, which is why he had to send Christ to die for us. And he knows us, and he loves us. This is what Paul's trying to get them to see. It's not that you know God, that you figured him out, or you've experienced him the right way. Though those things are partially true, it's that God knows you. He recognizes you as his own. So the question is, do you know about God or do you know that he knows you and he loves you? That's the big question. This is what we do when we take communion. We recalibrate our faith. We go back to this. Wait a second. Yeah, Lord, there's lots of junk still there. There's lots of immaturity still there. I am not where I, I, I know I need to be, but I believe that you know where I'm at. And you love me still. And I believe that because of what Jesus did. He's the author and finisher of my faith. He's the guarantee of my inheritance. He's my assurance that I belong to you. This is where the Lord wants us to be. Now, he, he asked the Galatians a very pointed question, and this fits in the whole context, and again, you can read the whole context later, but he says, how can you turn back again, and he calls them the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Why would you want to go back, he says. Now, this goes back to what we said earlier in verse 8 about Paul is comparing the the former paganism of the Gentile Galatians with this new legalism that these Judaizers, these false religious teachers are bringing in. And he's comparing these things. He's saying that they're the same because they work the same way. Listen, legalism, legalism is trying to be right with God I should say it's trying to be right with the God of Scripture by keeping the law. That's legalism. I'm going to be right with you, God. I'm going to obey your law perfectly. But the Bible's really clear. Paul was clear in Romans that no person, no flesh is ever justified before God by keeping the law. And so when you think, I'm going to keep the law, or I'm going to keep these rules, or I'm going to keep these religious things, that is legalism. 
Paganism is pretty much the same thing. Paganism is trying to be right with the gods of human invention by keeping their rules. See, both paganism and legalism seek to put their God in their debt. Hey, I've done the right things. You owe me now, God. Come on, I've done what was right. You owe me now, God. Paul says, the scripture says, the spirit would say to us today, that's bondage. It's slavery. And you're no longer a slave. Communion is about us coming back and saying, wait a second, Lord, forgive me. I've slipped into legalism. Now, now here's the interesting thing. We have this word, uh, there's a biblical word, it's, a, it's, a, it's used uh, in scripture, in, in certain versions, but it's also a word that's used by theologians to describe certain practices. It's this word licentiousness. I like saying that word, licentiousness. The word means to give yourself license to sin. It means that you're giving yourself permission to sin, okay? In a sense, that's what paganism did. That's what paganism does. You really want riches. You really want to be rich. That's your desire. So you make a god, little g, called mammon, and you worship it, hoping it'll make you rich. You really don't want any kind of restrictions on your sexuality. So you make a god called Astrith or Diana, and you worship that by having sex with temple prostitutes. Take your pick, male or female. This is what we do. And we do the same thing today. We have our little gods that we invent in our hearts and we say, okay, I'm going to do these things to meet the, the demands of this God and then, then I will be owed something. That's legalism. That's paganism. That's not the gospel. You see, God doesn't want us to be in that place. He doesn't want us to be religious, whether it's pagan religion or quote-unquote biblical religion. He wants us to know him, to love him for who he is and what he's done. Do you know why we struggle to obey God? It's not because we don't know right from wrong or because we don't know what God commands of us. We struggle to obey God because we don't really love him. Do you know why we don't really love God? Because we don't really believe he loves us. I was talking to somebody recently about a specific sin that um, we both have relations that have fallen into. They've been kind of trapped by the sin, decided they're going to live in this certain sinful lifestyle. And as we were talking about this, this other person was really grieving over it and really frustrated because of the particular sin that their relative had fallen into. And I said to him, yeah, you know, brother, but don't forget... The, the greatest sin that, that they're guilty of, that we're often guilty of, is unbelief. We don't believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he actually did what he said he did, that he actually is God's guarantee that he loves the world, that he doesn't want any to perish. But communion is about us recalibrating this getting back to the place that the reason I'm not appointed to God's wrath, though I deserve it, is because Christ took that wrath for me. The reason I know that I'm a, a child of God is not because I've earned it or I've been obedient enough, but because the Son died in my place so I could become a son. It's, it's going back. It's remembering what he's done for us.
Father, I pray, Lord, for those who may be watching at home or watching this a few days after it's been recorded, we ask, God, that you would help everyone who sees this to put their faith in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to press on with you, to want to keep walking with you, especially in these difficult times. So much is so uncertain. We're so thankful, Lord, that you are certain, that you are true. We continue to pray, Lord, for uh, our NHS and are thankful, Lord, for what you've provided for us through that. Give those workers wisdom and patience and grace. We pray for those who who govern us, who are an authority over us. We ask, God, that you'd give the parliament wisdom. We ask that you give Boris Johnson wisdom. Father, help us, Lord, no matter where we fall politically, not to be complainers, but to be prayers, those who pray for those in authority. We pray for the students as they come back, and even new students, the freshers this year, who, what a weird way to start university. We pray, God, that you give them grace. We pray you would help us to be creative and intentional about maintaining and developing relationships in this time. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to do in us, Lord, what you died uh, to provide for us. Make us like Jesus. We commit these things to you. In Jesus' name, everyone who agrees says, amen.